Hello, everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics Podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan. And today, as always, we have a very interesting guest, Mike Godwin. Mike is a freelance journalist who focuses on defense and security matters in Eastern Europe and the Caucasus, as well as NATO. He's a combat veteran of the United States Army and currently lives in Tbilisi, Georgia, where he runs his own journalism and ocean brand, Mike Reports. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure and a genuine honor to uh, be on a podcast. So, Mike, as I ask everybody when they come on, how the hell did an American end up in Georgia? And where did it all start off? Were you always interested in, in becoming a journalist while you're in the army? Why did you join the army? A lot of questions, but basically start from the start and how you got to here where you are today. So in short, I was one of the kids that always grew up playing with, you know, little green army men, you know, the GI Joes, that sort of thing. So it was kind of in my blood a little, a little bit. I even, not for disciplinary reasons, for my own choices, I went to military school and it, it was just something I fell right into the, the structure, the regimentation, everything just sort of made sense to me. And then even while I was still in school, I, you know, threw a kind of a I think they have it in the UK. It's something similar where they have kind of like a cadets thing where you can join the army, but like a year early. I did that. And yeah, I, I went off into the army. I did about six years there, a couple of different things, but pretty much all, all of it. In fact, all of it was combat arms. I just felt like, you know, if you were going to be in the army, I want to be the guy to carry the gun, to wear the boots, to wear the helmet and that, that sort of thing. As juvenile as that may sound, there was something to it, I think. But anyways, I did that. And then around 2013, 2014, you know, Iraq was over. Afghanistan, for all for all intents and purposes, at least for a for a combat arms guy, you know, I saw it as more of a peacekeeping mission, and so I didn't perceive it as, you know, I saw a loss of job security. Maybe that's a good way to put it. <laughs> I felt like, okay, well, maybe it's a good time to transition to the outside. You know, my contract was ending anyways, and so I said, well, I'm going to go ahead and and, uh, you know, get off at this stop. I, I did what a lot of U.S. veterans do. I did the GI Bill. For, for the non-American listeners, that's basically where the government pays for a lot of your schooling uh, if you do a certain amount of service. And so I went to university, studied business management, law, a little bit of law, but mostly business management, and uh, ended up working in the finance sector, which was great, paid well. But uh, there was something always inside of me that wanted to get back into the field. So after years of doing that, I had an opportunity to come here to Georgia to work with their border police, more or less as a consultant. There's a lot more tags to that, but we'll just say a consultant. Um, and it was it was probably one of the most fun experiences of my life, including that of the military. I got to ride around in a back of a pickup truck, you know, get to see some of the most rugged and rural parts of George, parts of the country, parts of the South Caucasus that were just, I mean, virtually untouched by mankind. I mean, other than us being there, I guess, but it was just beautiful. And then obviously got to work with some of the country's finest and do all this. And that only lasted about six months when, of course, the contract ends. The company essentially gives me a blank, you know, plane ticket to say, well, here's your ticket home. At the time, I was on kind of a special visa. So I said, I think I'm going to roll this over. So I don't know if it's the same way now. Don't take my word for it, but do your research for, for the listeners. But from my understanding, if you're from the U.S. or from most Central and Western, most European countries and a lot of Central Asian, you can come to Georgia and spend 365 days here not you know, like without question. It's pretty awesome. And so I just rolled my visa over to that the tourist visa. And set up shop, essentially kind of, you know, did my own thing. I'll be honest, for the first few months, I didn't do anything other than just sort of explore the place. It was just amazing. But the way I got into journalism was a, a good friend of mine here, uh, and actually a British Englishman who was 10 times the journalist I am or probably will ever be. But he introduced me to a local uh, news outlet called Georgia Today. I'm not trying to plug them. This is just simply who, you know, I'm freelance, but I write for them mostly, probably 80% of my writing. I think, I, again, I don't I don't work for them. I'm not unemployed, but I think they do probably one of the better jobs. And I've been writing to them for them about two years, and it was just something where I was like, this is what I was supposed to do. I love doing the research, 
fact-checking, the investigations, albeit sometimes sitting through three-hour boring press conferences. But yay, this is part of the job and I enjoy doing it. And then especially diving into, you know, given my defense, my military background, diving into some of the aspects of the South Caucasus because it's so complex, not just in Georgia, but in Georgia, Armenia, Azerbaijan, each one has their backers and their players. And you have this sort of, you know, what I've told told people a thousand times is there, if it wasn't for Ukraine and, you know, the invasion of Ukraine in February 24th of 2022, the powder keg for World War III would originally have been the South Caucasus because you have so many different players involved, but it's all controlled by very volatile players at a local scale. So it, it's been something I, I've just fallen into and I started Microports, I guess the upcoming December will be a year, a year of Microports. I, I'll, I'll planning on doing something fun, but we'll, we'll figure that out. But and I just figured I'm freelance. I might as well have my own brand. It's something I'm passionate about and it's something where I, you know, I don't mean to sound contrived or, 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 or pre, you know, pre-made, but it's something I genuinely love of giving this refined, um, you know, my, 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 my slogan on my, I think most of my social media channels is information curated, which is I, I've tried to find all this. I get it trimmed away from all the fat and all the, all the propaganda and try to present it in a way where this is much like you guys do, where it's like, Hey, here's the information you do with it, what you will. And I think that's the true essence of what I try to do and what most journalists in their inner four try to do. Do you think you're about to be in Georgia? for the foreseeable future? I would, I mean, I get the question a lot from, especially my local, my Georgian friends, you know, they're curious, <laughs> much like, you know, much like your original question, you know, what are you doing there, man? They kind of ask the same thing. I, for the foreseeable future, I think so. I have a lot of hope, a lot of, a lot of non-financial, if you will, investment in the country. I've, I've spent a lot of time here. I've, I've done a lot of work, you know, here. I love it. Also, Georgian food is extremely good. It's not healthy, but it's extremely good. But, it, but in all seriousness, I think it's something that I, for, I see myself being here for the long haul. Now, not to say that I won't be going other places for work in the short term, but I don't, but in, in the converse statement being, I wouldn't see myself going back to the United States, certainly not anytime soon. All right. Makes sense. I mean, if you're comfortable and if you like the country, as you said, you, you did some personal investments and, and you feel comfortable, then, then why not, I guess, right? It's an interesting part of the world, especially right now, looking at what's going on in, in Ukraine. What's the feeling like in, in Georgia, especially, you know, with some, some areas of Georgia still being occupied, what, what sense are you getting from, from on the ground and what are people think? Are people saying, you know, we should maybe take them back or yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about that. So that's a very, very interesting question you ask extremely. So because naturally that's something I pay a lot of time attention to. So in Georgia, there's not for anybody who hasn't been paying it, you know, not to say that they should be, but has not seen it. There's been a massive influx. We're talking Estimates range between 150 to 250, a quarter million people from Russia coming into Georgia. That's not necessarily all of them staying, but we certainly have rough numbers of about 115,000 Russians that are staying here in Georgia that have come from Russia in the wake of their mobilization order. I believe that was on September 21st. Don't quote me on that date, but I believe that's rougher, roughly around that date. The biggest problem we have here is a, there's a large amount of anti-Russian sentiment that's been bolstered by that. It's already existed because of, well, first, you know, it's hard to not be mad at a Northern neighbor who had invaded your country in 2008. And, you know, what was largely an internal conflict between South Ossetian militants and the Georgian military, Georgian security forces, but involved the Russian army. Um, but there's been a large movement to essentially, you know, I'm paraphrasing here, but go home, go back to Russia sort of movement that's been here. I haven't had it confirmed. I talked a little bit about it during one of my podcasts, but I, there, there's a couple of loose, loose claims of Russian citizens, of individual Russians being physically assaulted here in Tbilisi. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to verify these things because really you all, all you have to go 
go from is one person's social media claim. There's really not a lot of co collaboration. Certainly the Tbilisi police don't want that to get out because that causes an international incident. But what we've seen is a, a massive movement, I think at the popular level that says essentially Russia not only has been our enemy, but is more now more than ever our enemy. The problem is I don't think that's mirrored by the government. A lot of the government has taken movements. In fact, I'm in the process of writing something that essentially says that what the government is doing is not mirroring what the pop, what the people are doing. We have a we have a movement towards the purchase the the an increase in the purchase of Russian gas reserves, an increase in purchase of Russian food products. Some of these things that if we were if if Georgia was to be more of a Central European country would not be happening. And so I think a lot of that you kind of have this dichotomy of perspective between the government and the people that aren't exactly lining up regarding the, uh, the these territories the occupied territories of south ossetia and abkhazia one of the biggest things i've seen especially on south ossetian social media both i mean that's whether it's telegram the contact was ok.ru you know some of these platforms is not everyone, but a lot of people are expressing worry that the Georgian military is going to launch some sort of invasion against their, 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 as they perceive it, a nation. Mostly because not only has all, or if not most, if not all, of the Russian troops left to go deploy in Ukraine, most of the South Ossetian troops have been nationalized by the Russian government and pressed into service in Ukraine as well. So, you know, we've seen... I don't, I don't have an exact number. It's very hard to get from these people, you know, from South Ossetians, but thousands of South Ossetian troops that as for all intents and purposes, and as far as they're concerned are sovereign, you know, their individual, their own separate army being pulled into service in the Russian military. And we saw a few hundred, probably between two to 300 of them essentially hitchhike back home, refusing to serve because they were said, this is not our fight, our home, you know, we need to defend against Georgian aggression as they perceive it and not, you know, fighting in there in that war. So there's a lot of concern, I think, on that end, but I don't perceive the Russian or I'm sorry, the well, certainly not the Russian government, I don't think getting involved in anything here in Georgia right now. But I do see these concerns uh, being leveled. And I also see a lot of people in South Ossetia and Abkhazia that are worried about Georgian aggression. However, given my analysis of the Georgian government, that is unlikely at best and impossible on the other on the other end so i don't think yeah i i think well let me add this there is and i have this on good account that there is extremely strong presence of russian intelligence assets in the country they are active they are in fact a couple of them interestingly you know with these uh, this influx of russian personnel a couple of them have actually been caught they're not necessarily employees but agents being meaning they've been flipped and then pressed into service by the the fsb or the gru so it wouldn't shock me if there was something at play just very very deep under the surface i'll say that very interesting i think i think for a lot of people and i, and I never want to guess the intelligence of our listeners but i'm, I'm guessing they're intelligent people and that are world aware but I think it's also important to dive in a little bit deeper into the issues of South Ossetia and Abkhazia and how, how that came about. So if you can give us maybe a little backgrounder on how that, uh, conflict between Georgia and, and, and those two from Georgian perspective provinces wanted to become independent and how Russia used that to, to get a foothold. Sure. So again, it, like you said, it's, you know, I'll try to keep it short, but it's one of those, well, it's one of those topics that, you know, we could make an entire podcast or a series of podcasts about because it is, it goes very deep, but in short, basically under the Soviet Union, uh, Abkhazia which if you're looking at a map of Georgia is the Northwestern kind of panhandle, if you will, of Georgia. And then South Ossetia, which is the 
central northern sort of enclave coming out of north Ossetia, which is Russia proper right now. These two territories were sort of given semi-autonomy under the under the USSR, the Soviet Union. After the fall of the Soviet Union, both territories tried to claim independence. Obviously, Georgia did not allow this, which Georgia claimed its own independence as well, and fighting ensued. So you have essentially a civil war that went on for, I think, according to official records, it was 1991 to 1993, but it kind of kept dribbling on like many of these civil wars sort of do in smaller you know, smaller sparring for, and violence kind of, even to this day, I mean, obviously we have a, you know, a, what we call an administrative boundary line, an ABL in both territories. And so what happened is after the, you know, after the Soviet Union collapsed, Georgia gets its independence. We have this massive war and I believe it was in September 24th. I don't want to quote the date because I don't want to be too wrong on this, but it was in, I believe it was in September. There were the city of Sohumi, which is the capital of Ossetia, fell to a joint Russian and Abkhazian force and Russian troops, or I'm sorry, uh, Georgian troops were forced to retreat from the city and pull out of the area entirely, which basically gave rise to this tension we have now. As far as South Ossetia, those tensions continued up until 2008. One of the big causes belly that we see from the Georgian side, or I'm sorry, <laughs> correction, that the Russian side says is that, you know, Georgians were committing genocide and launching artillery attacks on on civilian areas. I, this isn't me just saying this. There are you know, plenty of others, but that, none of that's been founded. None of that's been verified. But they claim that that essentially that's all been, you know, been claimed by their side. And so what they basically built their entire position on is that Abkhazia and South Ossetia are victims of Georgian aggression and that they require Russian protection which is one of the things I've written about extensively is Russia's, some might say perverted use, some might say correct use, depends on who you ask, of course, but you know, perspective is key, but Russia's use of responsibility to protect, which is a, a part of the UN charter for large national countries, large countries, you know, superpowers to protect these under you know underdeveloped or weaker as they might as you might say and so that's why ultimately what happens is we see the construction of the fourth and seventh military bases in Abkhazia and South Ossetia there's a rough deployment of about 2,000 troops in each country or each you know territory and so that's essentially kind of how that builds out into today where we see a constant issue of illegal borderization so what happens and I've you know witnessed this is via drone footage, I've witnessed this, is what they do is they send out FSB slash local reconnaissance teams to move the move the boundary, physically move the boundary a couple hundred meters deeper into Russian territory. So it's it's the classic salami slicing that we saw in Ukraine back in 2014, 15, 16. So <clears throat> we see the same thing. We see FSB and GRU teams kidnapping people. I believe there's seven Georgian citizens that are held in Tbilisi in a Skinvali, which is South Ossetia, in their in their prison system right now, that were taken from sovereign Georgian territory. That's not me trying to propagandize. That's just that's that's what the facts tell us. They were taken from the other side of the ABL. So that's kind of where we're at, and that's a brief look at how we got to where we're at. I think you misspoke there. You mean they pushed the border into Georgian territory, not into Russian territory. Yes, I'm sorry. I apologize. Maybe I sometimes I I speak too fast. But yeah, so what happens is they essentially remove the barbed wire fence posts and move it 100, 200 meters into Georgian to please to held territory deeper in. And, and this happens on a monthly, if not weekly basis. That's pretty crazy. Even now. Russia seems to be preoccupied, no pun intended, in Ukraine. This is still ongoing. Yeah. So what we what I've seen is well, well, like I mentioned, you know, Russia has pulled pretty much every available and, and combat capable soldier and, and, and unit into its fold in Ukraine. That's included their forces in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. We haven't seen it from the the peacekeeping forces in Nagorno-Karabakh, but as we saw, I believe it was a few, about a month ago, they, they, they were not interested in, in fighting that war. 
I wouldn't if I were them either at the moment. So, all right. I, I don't want to pigeonhole this podcast and, and just talk about local issues or, or issues that you're focused on in your work, even though I am very interested in it personally. How is it to be a journalist in Georgia, a foreign journalist? How's that experience been? Uh, it's interesting. I'll say that there's, I'm not sure how to, and I want to be careful how I, how I term this, because obviously I don't think, I don't think there's any genuine, you know, discrimination or, or I don't think there's any of that. I think it's, you know, for example, when I go to press conferences, it's sometimes difficult to get, you know, I speak passable Georgian, you know, I'm not fluent, but I'm workable, but there's certainly a preference to local outlets. So for example, I went to one, I won't mention names or, or anything like that, but I went to one recently where we were set to do interviews with a couple of key figures. And those interviews were granted to local outlets, to local Georgian news outlets. However, um, whether intentionally or unintentionally, I can't say, I, again, I don't know this, but from my perspective, I was left out of these, these, these opportunities to, to speak with these individuals. Now, again, I want to preface, this could easily just been an oversight by the, by the events, events manager. You know, I don't want to actually point blame or say anything negative. But at the same time, it's something I've seen recurring at multiple events by different organizations. You know, I, I've seen this happen several times. I've also seen it with some press press organizations or press events, I should say, where they they prefer certain outlets over others and outright do not want foreign press outlets or press you know people involved. The press here is unique, but also I think there's a parallel to be drawn to, and I'll you know I'll call out the United States, my home country. I'll call them out. A lot of the major U.S. US news outlets essentially pick a side. They're either left or they're right. And we all kind of know that it's kind of an open secret that we all kind of see. You know, I think outlets like yours and other, other small, more grassroots, more independent outlets try to combat and stay in the middle. But a lot of the, those U.S. ones are, are pretty dug in in their trenches. Georgians are the same, but they're just not very good at hiding it. So what happens, I remember... I don't mean to go into this anecdotal story, but I think it's important to look at because it's recurred several times is I went to a press conference at a certain company or a certain country's embassy. That's inconsequential. I, you know, doesn't really matter where they come from, but we started talking about that. I asked a question, introduced myself and asked a, I don't know, I think a fairly normal question about, I think it was something about like economic support to Georgia or something nobody really cares about, but but a lot of these journalists wanted to dive into essentially what was, who do you side with politically in the country? Because we have a parliamentary system, but it's essentially the ruling party and the opposition, much like a lot of parliamentary systems, but it's very divided here. And so these journalists really wanted to dive in and, and force this ambassador of this country to side with one or the other. And I just felt like that wasn't right. And that wasn't what the press conference was for. So anyways, going back to your question, I kind of went off a little bit there, but I think ultimately being a foreign journalist in Georgia, it's not only is it a little bit, it's tricky, it's not hard, but it's a little tricky. You really got to know the social landscape. You got to know the terrain, um, but you also got to know <laughs> how the uh, security structure works here. I had an interview probably a year ago with one of the uh, director of the state security service here. And this gentleman already knew my name, where I came from, my military background in detail, which I don't tell people, not because it's secret. I just I don't do that. And so he knew all these details about me. I said, I have figured that because you guys do your homework and do your work, but it's a little, uh, but what that does is give you an insight into how the, how they operate on this, especially with the media. There is freedom of the press, but there's also a lot of problems with that. We've had, we, in fact, we've had, you can, a cursory Google search will show you there's been problems with freedom of the press here in this country. All right. Very interesting. Can I imagine if you, I think if, if in a lot of Western countries, if you would go in as a journalist and the head of a security service starts telling you what your background is, I think 
you might have a lawsuit here in your hands, you know, or at least a scathing article about how the state is, is overbearing perhaps, right? What I find interesting is the way you and I got in contact and, and, and I've been championing this for a long time through the internet and, and in particular through social media and how, how has that, because I know you're active on it and, and, and we, we are in some of the same circles. How does that influence the work that you do? Do you see the future more online or do you see more your, your work as a journalist or as an analyst on the ground? So I think there's a, a, a marriage, a hybrid importance of both. I think obviously, you know, you're not going to get away from online print journalism. You're not going to get away from things like this, like online discussions, but that's important. That's imperative, I think, to, you know, one of the things I've always said, and actually, interestingly, I have an interview with a, a very extremist group coming up, but one of the things I always say is it's important to have voices from every side online and available. You don't have to agree with them. I just think they need to be out there and let people make their own decisions. <clears throat> but at the same time, you know, I think it can't always be done from a, from a desk. You have to be able to get out there. And that's one of the things, you know, <laughs> if the listeners, they obviously they didn't hear this, but before we got started, I bought a new microphone that wasn't exactly working correctly. So, but we're here having a great conversation, but uh, I bought that microphone because I wanted to be able to get out in the field. I wanted to get good quality audio, even if it was a demonstration, a riot, hell, a shootout, whatever it was, I wanted to be able to get good quality audio. And you're not going to be able to do that, get in the field, cover this sort of thing and not be you know, sitting like I am now here at, here at a desk. You've got to be able to do a lot of that. You know, I think that, I think there's a duality that's important. You know, you've got to have your desk, which is where you do your research, where you spend a lot of time, where you dig, you know, but at the same time, I think there's an importance to the old school journalism of getting out there, getting in the field, you know, whether that's getting literally in the trenches or getting out there, you know, I went out there last year and had eggs thrown at me because I was a journalist covering an LGBTQ plus organization rally. I don't pick a side. I just happened to be there and they're like, ah, as a journalist, let's throw eggs at them. Uh, cause they were, there were counter protesters there. So, you know, I think, but I think it's important to, to do that. And I think, I just think that's, that's, that's something that's slowly being lost. Cause you have a lot of these, as I mentioned, Western news outlets where they just want to sit around a table and talk about the issue when none of them have truly been there or don't actually know what's going on or, or, or haven't, like I said, been in the field and well, had the proverbial and literal eggs thrown at them. So I think that's important. I think, I think there has to be a duality of the two. Yeah. I, lo I love your perspective on that because I think I'm guessing you and I are very close in age and a lot of the people that, that you and I both know that are active on social media, some of them, you know, brilliant people are much younger and maybe don't have that experience in life to go to these places or have, don't have the possibility. So I understand from that perspective, but it is also very important when I look at, because we don't like to say that we're journalists because we, we adhere to a bit of a different principle, but we do journalism from time to time, right? When I look at what I find fascinating, for example, where, where the, the hybrid position that you took, where that comes in, I, I know I'm going a little bit on a, on a tangent here, but bear with the way I see it is that for me, social media has given me and my organization a superpower and, and, and that superpower is we can talk about a group, a conflict, a situation, a pattern, and somebody would DM you that lives there and says, Hey, thank you for talking about it, but you're a bit off. And you engage with that person. That person said, well, here is the proof, right? So an example for that is we were talking about the, the Chechen divide in the Ukraine conflict, right? Where 
people on the outside that don't really know what's going on in Chechnya, which I want to ask you also questions about, that don't know what's going on, they assume that because these pictures and videos on social media are being posted of uh, the Chechen leader Kadyrov and, and, you know, his allies and, and, and his soldiers, then automatically all Chechens support this, this invasion of, of Russia and Ukraine, which is definitely not the case. And we were talking about this and somebody messaged me saying, Hey, here is two copies in Russian of mobilization orders for, for Chechens to, to fight in Ukraine. Well, if we were all pro, that's not necessary because they're taking kids out of their houses. So it gave me a lot of insight without really going to Chech to Chechnya, but I 100% agree with you that an underground perspective is crucial to, un to have a deeper understanding and to create and to show original stories and not rehash, you know, what's going on. So I think what you said, the hybrid way is the best way. Sadly, uh, journalism has been, you know, eroded a lot in, in, in the last 15 years. Some people blame the internet, you know, some people blame corporations. I don't know exactly what, what the reason is, but you see now that a lot of big media owners, they don't have the, the stations anymore around the world and they have to rely on maybe freelancers or, and I, I would like to hear from you. How do you see that going wrong? Do you think that that hybrid nature is going to go? Do you think that space will be taken by more grassroots, smaller independent organizations? So these are two questions. And my third question, you know, what do you think about, you know, the, 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 the Chechen issue? Sure. So yeah, a lot to, a lot to dive into there, but you know, I, I get long winded. I'll try to keep it short, but in sh I think with the journalism side of things, honestly, and, I, and I've discussed with a couple of other colleagues of mine, you know, the big question, like you mentioned, what is wrong with journalism today? And I think I hate saying it because it seems like such a simple answer that it almost seems like it's inaccurate, but I think there's a lot of truth to it. And that's money. There's a difference between, well, like what you and I do, which is, of course, we got to have a little bit of money. I got to keep the lights on. I got to be able to host podcasts like this. I got to be able to have the electricity and, you know, do my work. But there's a difference between that and what I think, as we've seen with most of the major yeah, you know, I don't even want to call them journalism outlets, but you know, the major news outlets, we'll just call them that the, the you know, big media, which sounds like I'm putting on a tinfoil hat when I say that, but big media, the problem has been with them is it's all become money driven, you know, money, sponsorship, donations, everything like that, where it starts to divert from we want to deliver the truth. We want to deliver this, whether it's a voice against the government or the re or, or against big corporations or whatever, against an organization that, you know, you know, it used to be, what do they call them? Gumshoes or, or, uh, you know, the people with the hats with press pop popped in the little side, you know, we got away from that where we started looking at all these media where you have some, you know, beautiful woman or very, you know, trim man in a suit and tie t telling you what you need to be thinking. And don't get me wrong, I'm not trying to smash on them too much because every now and then, you know, like a hammer in search of a nail is sometimes they hit it. But at the same time, I think they've gotten in the way of we want to, you know, we want to do what our supporters, what our constituents, what our followers, whether it's Fox News that, you know, is pretty overtly right or CNN, which is pretty overtly left. They want to create more that builds their followers on that each side of the uh, side of the spectrum. And I don't mean to use those names, you know, I, I, please lawyers from Fox News and CNN don't come after me. But, but what I think, what going kind of to your second question, which is ultimately, I think more and more people are, which you and I both, I think, see on social media by our, by our viewership, by our subscribers, by, you know, by the increased number of people that are, uh, you know, following, if you will, us, because we see people that they just want to see somebody who's, not it not influenced by the money they're I mean, trust me i'm very not influenced by money right now i can show you my bank account not influenced by money but uh, that's just a bit of levity but no you know we we have groups like us where we want to dive into this stuff and say 
this is what's really happening. This is the deep dive. We have the resources. Also, we're willing to go out on a leg and say, this is what I found through this you know, batch of research, whether you believe it or not is up to you, but I think it's true. You know, sometimes a bigger media is not willing to, to, to gamble on that, but I think there's that independent. And the other thing is it's a lot easier to subscribe, you know, to 30 Facebook or Instagram or, 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 you know, Twitter accounts like yours and ours or mine by, by like ours that just simply report it and say, like I said earlier, you know, Ultimately, I'm just going to dump the information in front of you. You guys can figure it out for yourselves as far as what you want to make of that. Personally, I do, like like you guys, I do a little bit more analysis sometimes, which I think is really helpful. Like you guys have done incredible work with some deep dive analysis and what that means in the larger picture. Because sometimes, you know, a lot of people need that. They don't, you know, they, stuff like the South Caucasus. Most people in the UK, US, you know, Western Europe, they kind of think of this as the backwater. There's nothing really going on. When, like I said in the, yeah, I think in my my initial statements was this: if it wasn't for Ukraine, this could very well be the powder keg of World War III if if things get sideways, which could happen very quickly. So I think ultimately, you know, journalism itself, I, I think they, ha I think the grassroots groups like ours, which you you know, you guys are a lot bigger than I am. I'm just kind of one man band here, but Mike reports. Gray Dynamics, a lot of pages like this, I think what's going to happen is more people are going to pay attention to that because it's, well, A, it's more reliable, quite frankly. That's not just me saying I'm reliable, but but I think most of these pages are more reliable. There's no money incentive. They just simply do it because their passion is it. They're, they're journalists, they're, they're researchers, they're analysts with passion versus some guy in a suit getting paid $2.7 million a year to just talk on TV. So I think that's ultimately what's going to happen. Now I'm going to pivot to the Chechen question. Yes, <clears throat> there is a huge divide between Chechens and Dagestanis, English Chechens. I'm going to use the term Chechen, but and I'm sure if there's any Chechen listeners or, or English Chechens or Dagestani listeners or anybody Alanian listeners, they'll get a little upset, but just bear with me. It's a catch-all term for people in the West. I apologize ahead of time, but what's happened in, in, in Chechnya. So little background again, just like what I talked about, Chechens and Russians have been fighting. Oh God, since before the Imperial Russians, since before the czars, it's been, it's been a, it's a long, long fight, but basically the Kadriov family sold out to the Russians. Ramzan Kadriov, the current leader of the Chechen Republic is basically on the Russian payroll to run the country and with the guarantee that nothing get, that we don't have a third Chechen war. That's sort of the guarantee. There's a lot more to it, but that's kind of the nutshell. The Chechens are split more so than a lot of the media says, and certainly more so than Russian media says. There are a lot of Chechens that follow Kadriov blindly. Kadriov has, much like the Kremlin, an incredible, incredible propaganda campaign to Persuade and and to to per, persuade people to be sympathetic to his cause, to his, be more pro Kremlin, which in in turn is pro pro Ukrainian war, pro quote unquote special operation or special military operation in Ukraine. You know that he spends and the Kremlin spends millions of rubles, millions of dollars to keep that machine running. But there's a lot of Chechens that don't buy that. That's why you have the Joka, the Dudayev Battalion. You you have several units that are part of the Ukrainian military, essentially, de facto part of the Ukrainian military. I'm not going to go into the whole, the Shamil Basayev Battalion, I think, is one smaller. There's the Dudayev Battalion. I mean, yeah. So you get the point. Is There's a ton of these units and, and fighters essentially saying, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to do the same thing our, our fathers and our grandfathers and likely their great-grandfathers and even more of the family tree did, which is fight Russian troops. In fact, there's been, and I wrote a little bit about this, that there's a little bit of internal strife going on currently in uh, Chechnya and Gushetia in sort of the, the North Caucasus because a lot of people are saying, well, you're just sending our guys off to die our sons, our brothers, et cetera. They're, they're very upset with the, first of all, the lack of progress in the war. You know, whether you're pro-Russian or pro-Ukrainian, everybody kind of looks at this objectively and says, Russia has not done well in the past few months. Militarily, tactically, strategically, you lost territory. 
you may have taken a couple of square kilometers, but you lost hundreds of square kilometers in return. So it's not doing well. Chechnya sees this and says, well, why are we sending our guys to go do this without any tangible return? We don't get anything out of this. So you're seeing a lot of, I think, popular towards this. And I think it's growing, quite frankly. I think a lot of it stays unreported because it's immediately quashed from getting out of the region. But from what I've heard, both from speaking people here or to people here and through research is, look, the, there's a lot of Chechens that are more and more becoming more vehement, more aggressive in their anti-Kadriops. To give you a, you know, a little bit anecdotal, very small example, but one of the Muslim leaders of Chechnya spoke out against him. Of course, we never heard from that guy ever since. So you can kind of imagine where that went. But there's more and more, I think, popular resistance. I wouldn't say armed, wouldn't say demonstrations. I don't think we'll see protests because obviously that's going to get quashed by the Russian Guard, the Russian National Guard. But I think we're going to see more and more people that are going to find alternative or obscure ways of both resisting, but maybe also hindering the progress of Russian mobilization and action, government action in the North Caucasus. Thank you so much. I think that that kind of disappears in, in all the rhetoric, you know, that there is, Russia is a very diverse country, right? With, with a lot of populations and that, you know, now are being targeted for mobilization disproportionately than Moscow, St. Petersburg is right. So th there is, I think, a responsibility for, for, for outlets to talk about that and not, you know, blank, I mean. It's easy to show videos of Kadyrov and, and, and his, you know, equipment and all that stuff. And, you know, and say like, right, you see, these are all mobilized, right? And, and for me, I'm looking at it just as an observer, you know, I, my opinion in, in each side, I, I don't really, I have an opinion. It doesn't really matter for the work that I do. I just observe and analyze and report, right? So, but I think it, there is a responsibility there to, to, to show these more and, and not just, you know, fall on one or either side of the, of the, of the question. Mike, I, I, I think this is probably the most insightful podcast we've done around, you know, maybe the back end of this conflict or the, or the front end, depending on how you look at it, because it started with Georgia in 2008 and 14 in, in Ukraine and now again. But I think it's very important for people to understand what the dynamics in the Caucasus are, because they, they influence what Russia will do and, and, and how it will operate. I want to take a step back and ask you about something that I've asked every guest that is on. From a young person that's looking at what we do or listening to this podcast, what advice would you give them? That's, that's a, that's, yeah, that's a big one. The biggest thing I try to tell people when given the opportunity, I think is, you know, I know it's not easy, but do your research, pay attention to things. You know, as we talked about earlier, I like to think, I'm pretty reliable and I do my homework, but at the same time, do your own as well. You know, the, I think that's the, I think that's probably in short, the biggest thing is, you know, there's so much, we live in an age now and it's becoming even more so, you know, as days go by and hours go by really is that there's so much information out there that you have to be even more careful than ever before. You know, I'm, yeah, I, I think I'm old enough to say when I grew up, I could just turn on whatever news channel and get a pretty reliable insight into the world. That is no longer the case now. You're going to get a very, very scoped view of what they want you to see in the world. But I, so I think, you know, obviously I want people to subscribe to Microports, but I think it's also important to subscribe to Gray Dynamics and other ch and other channels that are like us that say, hey. We're not always going to share the same opinion as unbiased and, 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 and true as we like to be. A lot of us come from different backgrounds. I've been pretty open about my bias. I'm American. I come from a Western or NATO or U.S. military you know, background, so I have this kind of view on the world. Maybe it's good to get somebody who maybe comes from the Russian military or, or 
comes from an Iranian background, Persian background. So I think it's important to diversify your sources, do your research, but also stay open-minded. Like things are not always what they seem. You know, what's the old saying is, you know, all that glitters is not gold. You know, everything that seems nice and comfortable to hear is not always the truth. So I think, I, I think ultimately to kind of boil it down, stay open-minded, see the world, enjoy it. It's a dark place because you and I both know we spend a lot of time viewing a lot of the, the, the darker parts of the world, but stay open-minded. You know, if something contradicts your traditional perspective on the, on the, on, on a conflict or an, or, or a geopolitical in, you know, interest in, in the world, don't dismiss it just because it doesn't seem comfortable. Do a little digging. Maybe it's wrong. Maybe it's true. Maybe there, there's always, there, you know, it's like the old saying, there's always another side of the coin. So I think that's important. That, that's what I would recommend. And, and, you know, I would ask people. Thank you so much. I think that's so important to say, go to those rabbit holes and, and it might be wrong, you know, but along the way you learn a lot. Right. And, and I would say for people that are starting out doing this, don't go to the darkest corners immediately because not, it's not, it's not always good to see these things because they stick with you. I think there's, we have a bit of a responsibility to tell people that too, right? On a bit more levity, what are you reading right now? What are you watching? Any recommendations? So as far as, so reading, I'm currently reading the Patrick O'Brien series, um, popularized by the movie Master and Commander. It doesn't really have anything to do with my current work. It's just something I, I don't know, something about old tall ships sailing over the seas and battling, you know, dueling each other. It's just, it's, it's, <laughs> I don't like the word romantic because it's not manly enough, but it's manly romantic. It's pretty cool. So I, I, wa I read that. I also only flip through, um, I don't know, it's in my bookshelf right now, but it, it's a book called Militant Tricks. I don't remember the author, but it basically dives into a lot of the paramilitary tactics used by Iranian and the Iraqi insurgents in, well, the, the global war on terrorism in Iraq, the, the invasion. And it's, to me, it's fascinating, not just from a military tactical standpoint, but also from a, a psychological standpoint, where they, you know, where they get their, their motivation and where a lot of it comes from. So I think that's interesting to me also potentially useful if russia does come back to georgia <laughs> but but yeah so that's kind of what i'm reading as far as what i'm watching i am currently about to start watching the new netflix uh, i guess movie it's, it's, yeah it's a movie now all quiet on the western front invest on nick noyle i read the book you know in school it was probably one of the only books i actually read in school like cover to cover <laughs> as my because they all, oh God, my teachers always recommended just terrible books. But this was one where I was like, oh man, this is super cool. And something about it resonated. Maybe that's why I joined the army because I thought I'd be in the trenches. But but but, but I, I I fully intend on watching that fully soon. So that's that's on the uh, the docket, I think. Because I think, oh man, I mean, it, I, I don't need to tell your viewers this. Your you know, I think your viewers and and you in particular are very smart people. Where it's like the the depth and essence of not only that book, but the work and the, 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 the meat in that book is so, not only is it, I think it resonates more now because we're, we're seeing a war that is sadly degrading to something sim similar to that, where it's just brutal man on man, but it's something where I think it says something about humanity that nobody likes to look but yeah i didn't mean to get too deep into it but that's basically what i'm reading and watching i love it love it no i i'm i'm, I'm gonna hopefully watch it on friday i'm lucky that my significant other is a, a major history buff too so that helps to watch it together the book is amazing i, I can highly recommend it so that's fantastic to be fair with you when you talked about the first book that you, that you were reading, I think we all need, I've never said this on a podcast, but it's a good opportunity as any to talk about this, but I think we all need time away, right? Especially if you're a professional researcher, you, we read a lot, right? It's good to take a step out and, and read something interesting, fun, you know, guilty pleasure. It's just good also for your brain to just get inspired, right? So I'm, I'm a massive science fiction fan 
and I read a lot about like rockets and, and, and aliens and all that stuff. And, and I find that fantastic, which is, you know, a complete, it's a bit of a juxtaposition with what I do normally on a daily basis and what I focus on. But I think it's good for, for people to understand, hey, don't get lost in, in your work and, and have something outside of it. And also give that, yeah, give yourself a bit of a break and be kind to yourself, you know, and, and indulge. Mike, thank you so much for being on. I, the time has flown by. We had a bit of technical issues, but we, we were able to, to overcome. And, um, yeah, again, I, I really appreciate for you taking the time. I know we're in a bit of different time zones and do you have any final remarks, comments, advice, tips? I mean, I can't agree with you more. Get out there, get fresh air go climb a mountain, whatever it is, get out there and go, go do that. Absolutely. You know, that's, I think that, that that's, you know, it's one of those things like what we do, we, we, we stare into the, in the dark soul of humanity where it's sometimes you just got to yank the power cord out and say, Nope, I'm going camping for the weekend. So for, for listeners, that's, that's what I would definitely say is, you know, it's one thing to get your information. I guess that's a part four to the three points I said earlier, which is, disconnect sometimes, you know, get away from it, you know, get out there, you know, nature is something that's absolutely beautiful. I can say, cause I'm here in Georgia, which is, I would say one of the most beautiful countries ever, but that's just me. Maybe that's my biases showing, but, but no, you know, get out there, disconnect from it. Don't let yourself get too wrapped up in all this. You know, what's the old saying is, you know, you stare too long into the abyss, the abyss stares into you, you know, don't become a part of that. Get out there disconnect, have fun, enjoy. And I guess the only, the only last thing I would say is thank you so much for having me on. It, it's a, a genuine pleasure and honor. I hope, I hope the listeners enjoyed it as much as I did, because I really do. You know, my passion is this geopolitics discussion, whether we agree or disagree, there's always something to be had. There's always a good takeaway. Well, thank you so much for, again, for being on it. I've been meaning to ask you for a while now. I got a little bit inspired by our last episode with Ray Jax, who we both know. That went really well. And, and I want to provide a platform for, for people like you and like myself to, to, to talk about these things from a different perspective. And to the listeners, guys, if you made it to this, this far, thank you for, for joining us again and listening to, to Mike's interesting story and I will share Mike's socials in, in the show notes. And I think he's most active on, on Instagram, Mike reports. So that I will share that too. And I will see you guys next week, but before or speak to you next week, before I do that, guys, please give us feedback because that's, that really helps us. And we know what you guys want to hear, what you don't like, even if, if it's bad feedback, please give it to us because we appreciate it. And, make it constructive, you know, and I see you guys next week. Thank you, Mike. Thank you.